0: Hey guys, and welcome to Sounds Like NYC, the only podcast dedicated to spotlighting New York City talent. I'm David, and today we have a New York City-based author, Thomas Dija. His newest work, New York, New York, New York, four decades of success, excess, and transformation is out in bookstores and online now. You can find him on Instagram at T Dija. That's D Y J A and at ThomasDija.com. Please welcome Thomas.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, David.
0: Thanks so much for coming on. So I, I, I'm gonna be honest with you. You sent me the book. I've only gotten maybe like a quarter of the way because it's just so much in there. I have to reread pages just to get the actual like whole context of the whole situation. There's a lot. But it's it's a really good book
1: Thanks, for man.
0: for someone who's like lived in the city his whole life and just thought things are the way because that's just how they are. There's like so much that happened in the past that has made it to what it is now. It's just really. I don't know, I guess, refreshing to see, like, you know, why things are the way they are. So you I, know, appreciate I mean,
1: that. that's history, you know, and I think one of the things about New York is that even when you grow up here, you know, I mean, I've raised my kids in New York. And so many people come here from other places, other parts of the country in the world, and everybody believes, like, it, here's what was and now I'm here, you know, and now exactly. it all begins, you know, it started when I got here. And so I really wanted to kind of give some background, people my age, it's been, you know, the, gee, you told the story of my years in New York, which was cool, you know, and I really, I enjoy that, but it was also really intended for people who weren't there for the whole time, to get a sense of how things got to where they are, you know, I mean, when you look at Brooklyn, people talking about, oh, I'll, I moved there, and then all the gentrifiers came, and it's like, well, actually, you might have been one, because there were <laughs> 20 years before you, you know, I mean, to help people kind of get a context of of how things really happened in the city and Mm -hmm. as a way to help us think about what's coming next, you know?
0: For sure. I mean, I I think that's definitely something that we need right now with, you know, is it, I saw something on Facebook, could be, you know, maybe something that somebody made up, but (laughs) Blasio said that he's going to open up again, the the city, like in July. I,
1: I saw that too. I saw that July 1st um so you know crazy. fingers crossed man folks get out there and get your vaccines i mean i got my yeah. two and it's it's that will be possible i think if everybody gets vaxxed it is mm. it is possible
0: yeah i mean i, I got my vaccine too and like it, it was only uh i only felt the first shot and then the second one was like easy peasy
1: good you know it, it's different for everybody the second <laughs> one knocked me on my butt for a day but you know two weeks i'm fine now i'm out there
0: I mean, listen, whatever, whatever lets us go back to drinking out in New York City. I'm cool with (laughs) just seeing other people, you know,
1: And look, that was one of the that was the weirdest thing about, I think, the pandemic, you know, and and one of the points of the book is that there have been these horrible crises along the way, you know, New York Mm -hmm. in the late 70s with the fiscal crisis and crime. I mean, it really was as much as it was fun to be a teenager and be running around in that Mm -hmm. if you weren't you know if you had your whole future ahead of you it was one thing but if you were trying to live through that it it was rough and a lot of people were in pain and the city was messed up and there have been other crisis moments you know that when Dinkins came in it was peak AIDS and peak crack and peak crime and again people said the city's going down it was the cover of Time Magazine the city New York's over you know and then 9-11 and everyone said no one's going to live in a city again you know no one's going to live in Manhattan and people rushed off to Brooklyn, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's never going to be no one's going to want to live in a city. And a couple years later, it was bigger and stronger and, you know, more dangerous Mm -hmm. in a certain way than ever. And so I look at this moment we're having, and it's absolutely not like anything we've had since, you know, we used to have smallpox epidemics or whatever, you know, back in the 1840s and that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Um, And people did exactly the same thing. People with money got the hell out. And, you know, I mean, it was exactly the same thing. But, you know we have to look at it that there are it's a real opportunity for um, to make some changes and the city does get up off of its off its butt mm-hmm. and, and really has every time after these crises found a way forward so I think instead of for me let's not just make the answer go back and like give the, the businesses and the corporations exactly what they want so they come back this time we have to ask people like let's okay, We're going to do some of that. People don't come to New York to be poor. Let's be frank. You know, even poor people come to New York hoping they're going to get rich. So that's something we have to answer for all levels of people. But this time it's meaning answering it for all levels of people. Let's help people who are further down the ladder get some of the pie instead of like, just hoping that it gets sprinkled down from top. So I, I think that's why we really need to talk about equity and stuff as we go forward this time mm-hmm. around, but it, it, it can get better. And I think it will be, but it needs a lot of buy-in from young people because it's a very generational thing.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, do you, do, do you think that, you know, I, I guess, what, what would you like to see implemented specifically, um, after the whole pandemic is, you know, over and done with.
1: Well, I mean, in a kind of in policy terms, you know, get out in the weeds here. I mean, I think housing really matters. I think housing is is really important when you look at um, kind of the three cycles of the book that I have in there. You know, kind of the, the the Koch-Dinkins period and the Rudy Giuliani period and the Bloomberg period. Housing kind of came into play one way or the other, and especially under Koch, where. It was helping a new generation of people move back to the city, basically my generation, you know, baby boomer people kind of move back into and repopulate the city. But there was also that big housing initiative um, that helped immigrants and a lot of people who, you know, weren't all white folks coming into the city working in offices um, to build housing in, in neighborhoods that had been just vacant lots had been completely blown out. And that played a major impact on cutting down crime because people were living in those places again. They became neighborhoods and communities again. So as much as we talk about cops doing that stuff, it was really people, I think, who made the enormous difference in regrowing their neighborhoods and stuff. So I think in this case, housing's really important because it's time again for younger generations to be able to move into the city and and make it their own. You know, that's what That's kind of the pages turning here and that kind of involvement is really important, but we need people to be able to live here. You know, I mean, my own kids are like, am I going to be able to afford to live in New York? It's like, you grew Mm -hmm. up here. Yeah. I'd like to think so, you know, Um, but they they have to make choices too, you know? So it's not, um, it's across the board as to whether the city is going to remain for New Yorkers and not just kind of sold off to real estate investors from Mm -hmm. Taiwan or wherever the hell, you know?
0: Right. No. Yeah. I mean, I, every time I see somebody who has, you know, decided to, to make the move and come over here, you know, to New York City from, you know, some whatever flyover state or what have you, uh, I, I always feel like I, I guess sort of grateful that I was, you know, grandfathered into the city, so to speak, because, you know, I was I was born here. And like, I don't right. think I would have the guts to do it myself, just how like insane the city is, like in every aspect. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so, so like, even, even with people coming from, uh, you know, coming over here to college, it's just, I wouldn't do it. And I'm from
1: one of those flyover states. So, you know, walk with that. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it always was, you know, and that's another thing to keep in mind with all this, you know, is that there are these kind of repeating cycles, you know, moving here in 1980, real estate, where it was still always hard to find an apartment but Mm -hmm. there was no street easy. There was no Zillow. Like you had the village voice that came out on Wednesdays and that had all the apartments to share and rent basically. And you looked at obituaries literally to see if people were like who died in where. and you'd go to the super and stuff. I mean, it was, it was guerrilla war to get an apartment, you know, and they weren't cheap. You know, the same Mm -hmm. thing. We all had roommates. You all kind of got that place. I mean, that's been an eternal thing. A lot of it though is geography because we were, wrestling over places on the Upper West Side and in the East Village and stuff. I mean, where it was, people were still coming over from Brooklyn um, to kind of move into the city. But after I graduated from college, the first place I looked, this was 1984, was in Greenpoint. You know, people are already looking in Brooklyn and were living out there and we're kind of starting little beachheads all over the place. At the right. end of the day, I grew up in Chicago um, in a neighborhood where everybody spoke Polish. And I went to Greenpoint and I was like, Wait, at, okay.
0: home, right I at home right just left.
1: you know i just left <laughs> chicago you know so i i do i went back to manhattan and kind of dug in on the upper west side i'm
0: mm-hmm. I mean, like how in your book you also talk about you know downtown and like what that meant uh could you talk a little bit about that and yeah i mean experience? it
1: was it was a really it, it was a really exciting moment um because you had the stuff going on in the south bronx um kind of the graffiti art scene and and hip-hop really you know what jeff chang always calls the seven mile world that kind of world of of the different art streams of hip-hop coming together the dance the graffiti art the you know the music of it and then you had an interesting scene going on downtown you know people down there that it kind of greenwich village has always been a place where people go to be artists but there was another younger kind of couple generations that were there Um, percolating and they were able to kind of come together. You know, the Times Square show was an art show in 1980 um, at 41st, kind of in Times Square. And it was a takeover of these two, uh, kind of what used to be a brothel. You know, it was like a beat up, and these artists just turned it into kind of a big art installation. It was the first place where where Keith Haring showed. It was the first place where Basquiat was, David Hammonds, who has that new wonderful thing over on the river by the Whitney uh he had things there a whole lit you know just a list of great artists all young artists all just showed stuff there it was open for a month non-stop everybody just came and went and it was this moment though um where like fab five freddy came down um and met a guy named charlie Ahern, who i don't know if you know him but then together they got together and they made the movie wild style Hmm. have you ever seen wild style
0: i still have not seen wild style
1: okay (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think we talked uh, about we that talked before. About before. That's your homework, all right? Okay. I mean, it's kind of the Rosetta Stone uh, of, of uh, exactly uh, yeah. we do that. You know, it's kind of the Rosetta Stone of 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 hip hop and and that scene. Um, Lee Canones, who is maybe the greatest kind of most legendary graffiti writer, is in it and is the hero of it. Um, and it's a kind of loose story about getting into the New York art world and stuff. But all these famous early rappers are in it. It's amazing. You know, it's just it kind of it. Kinda, it uh, climaxes with this big scene at the east river amphitheater this big concert and it's just such a taste of what what the time is but that movie happened because of the times square show in uptown and downtown and what was really most important about that whole scene was it was the first time when kind of the kind of afro-atlantic art scene pushed forward like it Mm -hmm. wasn't a total appropriation where people you know pat boone is taking you know blues music and shit i mean it's it's it was you're in the, you know the the people of color were centered in the whole scene and and you know when Madonna is dancing with with her dancers she's dancing with them not just in front of them there was a sign of of really Charlie Ahern said you know we we had kind of beat apartheid you know in that moment and so it was really a generative kind of big bang moment um, I think for the East Village and arts in general and just sort of asserting very early on a moment for that you know that kind of takes waves in the art world. And then in 93, there's another show at the Whitney, which is, this is 93, so 21, 20, 28 years ago, it's all about the things we're talking about now, you know, with the culture wars and things like that. I mean, mm-hmm. battles about multiculturalism and all this kind of stuff. It was all in that show. Um, and that language that we use now was kind of there. So the, the discussions we're having now about art and culture and identity are, are kind of continuing battles, you know, and a couple really important moments that happened over these years. And I, I wanted to write about them and kind of contextualize them, help people learn about them, but also know that they're, they're, they're new to the battle, but the battle has been ongoing for a while.
0: Right. No. Yeah. I, do you think that like, like what role do you think the internet has played in, you know, the whole, i guess you know clicks or or whatever you would call it yeah like has has it made it like has it exacerbated it or has it made it better
1: you know i mean it's all over the place you know it's like it's like cars you know we all complain about oh cars have destroyed everybody made cars you know they destroyed their cities for cars and all this kind of stuff but you know cars get you to the hospital faster (laughs) cars get you to visit your mom you know i mean there's a lot of upsides on cars you know i mean what would we do without them in a certain way and I kind of feel that way about what's happened with the internet. We, we, we have, I think at the beginning it was like, oh my God, we can do anything. You mean, I can just click that and it'll come tomorrow. And now it's like, oh, I click it and it comes tomorrow. It's had this devastating impact. And so when we talk about it in New York there are huge pluses and there are huge minuses. You know, I think it played a major role in kind of blowing up the idea of a monoculture, because you pr- you were increasingly able to kind of find things you want out there in the world, um, and that was a really good thing. It was really useful in helping the city learn how to take care of itself using technology and computers to kind of not just track crime, but you know track garbage pickup and stuff like that. I mean, really boring, mundane things, potholes, you know a lot of that stuff really did get better because technology began to exist to deal with it. But the downside is that it it helped fragment us, I think. It broke Mm -hmm. us apart and we find each other online. But I think we still, it's kind of undermined our ability to to, um, kind of get face to face with each other. And cities are really based on, there's this great guy, Holly White, who was an urbanist kind of 60s, 70s, who we kind of the godfather of this idea that, um, you know, pe- cities are about helping people exchange, you know, not just money, but other stuff. And we made it all about money during these years. But it's really about exchanging a lot of things, knowledge and, and access and cachet and, and caring for each other. I mean, there's a lot of different things there. Right. And cities are about helping people. Put those things together, you know, and if you want a city to be healthy, it's got to be, you've got to have people in it. The streets have to have people and there has to be action, you know, and I think the internet has undermined that face-to-face quality to some degree. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. created new kinds of connections with people, which are really cool. And that's kind of the, that half and half good, bad thing. You know, now you can, you can find that person Um, on a very macro level. It's kind of undermined New York as the center where you went to do your own thing. You know, in a geographical level back in 1980, if you wanted to find a certain kind of thing or have the freedom to express yourself in a certain way, you did go to New York because it was one of the few places. And I think the internet has now let people in Tulsa and Colorado, you know, in Salt Lake City experience some of that without having to leave those places. Um, and I think that also helped New York um, become a little bit more like America for better or worse uh, because we kind of didn't have to, it wasn't always about the craziness. It led in space for people to be, um, you know, kind of lawn mower people, you know?
0: Gotcha. I mean, the, the way I see it, it's like it, it's made communication a bit more intentional, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it allows you to be like, hey, listen, I'm looking for, you know, creatives in New York City. That's all I want. And then the people who are like, oh, yeah, right. I'm a creative in New York City. i do that. But it's also like the flip side to that is you also, you know, put yourself in an echo chamber or, you know, I'm only attracting people with my ideas. There's no like right. challenging of ideas, so to speak, unless you have like a public forum, uh, which which I think is, you know, what new york city inherently is right because there's just so much going on with so many people it's the exchange of ideas and, and that's what builds you as a person you know what right
1: I mean? and your stuff gets beat up you know it's supposed yeah. to get beat up the whole idea of new york is kind of bringing your stuff to market you know whatever it is you're kind of putting it on the stage you're Um, And it's, you're you're supposed to get smacked around a little bit. And and people are supposed to say, you know, nice try, but get back out there. And that Mm -hmm. is kind of what it is. And I agree when you're just going to, people like to just be reinforced and hear what they want to hear. And at the end of the day, what we really most need Is a community and communities where we're able to talk about the differences and not just the thing we have in common. You know, Mm -hmm. talking about differences and and working through that stuff is really what binds a community together, not just kind of patting each other on
0: the back. Right. No. Yeah. That that makes perfect sense.
1: You know, I mean, in art as much as anything else, you know, same thing. So, you know, I, I also. The other final thought, you know, kind of on the Internet is that it's so much about delivering information Mm -hmm. that sometimes we I think it loses meaning. We've become so intent on just sort of delivering what we want to say um, that it it becomes the goal is to sort of lose all the stuff around it. And and that that Mm -hmm. friction around it is where the meaning comes from. I think a lot of times I just think of like, you know, influencers. i don't know what to make of that man i'm just too old to wrap my head around that thing you know it's just like i don't know it's just so delivery of 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 delivery of picture money it's a weird transaction that that is not i think a great um advance
0: but i don't know i i generally don't understand the whole influencers thing like i get it it's you know uh if a celebrity was my next door neighbor type feel, I guess, but I, I don't see the whole, I don't know. I I mean,
1: you know, I can't, you know, style and fashion was something that you had a very serious and, you know, crazy pretentious, crazy nuts, Diana Vreeland and all these people, but they did create, I mean, there was an art to it, you know, with a sense of history, I mean, laden with all kinds of I'm going to scrape away all the terrible things that they also brought along with it because they were there. It was very much a certain kind of vision. But mm. there was history, there was kind of a real conscious sense of, of what was being packaged in there, um, as opposed to just the image. You know, here I am at a pool with a drink wearing this thing. you know, there was, of a, a photographer styling this whole thing with I mean there was some real profound thought that went into it yes. which has seeped into our culture in a, in a lot of ways you know again good and bad but visually some of those photos from the 40s and 50s are still images that we, we think of and, and use and just sort of assume and, and I don't know that that kind of do-it-yourself world is ever going to reach that level of outside of very I'm sure there's some fascinating people doing it but you're just never going to puncture that kind of level of interest i think and lasting quality that some of those other people brought to it
0: i mean it's it's all a matter of reach right like do you think that you'd be able to do something like that you know do you think you'd be able to hire you know a stylist like have that vision um probably not so that's why it's going to be you know a classic and taking a photo by the pool drinking a martini or something like anybody could do that (laughs) literally i mean mean, that's what's so great you know but
1: all right if you want to kill something make it available to everybody right um that is something i never believed when i was young i was like everything should be available for everyone and then then you're like oh no one cares they turn the page you know i mean it's it's (laughs) that is it's you kind of got to hold back a little bit i think to make Mm. people want stuff
0: human nature is funky like that (laughs) 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 <laughs> what, what made you what made you go from novels to, to nonfiction books? I think you Not selling enough novels was a big part of that. <laughs> you wrote three of <laughs> them, right?
1: I did. No. And listen, they did nicely. They got like option for movies and stuff. And that was um, that was cool. And I really was something I always wanted to do growing up was write novels and, and write fiction. And I like doing it. But um, you know, it, it's not fun to write novels and not be able to makes, you know, make something of a living off of it and, and, mm-hmm. and not have people necessarily read it in, in droves, you know, mm-hmm. and um, the, the kinds of novels I like writing, which had a lot of history in them. Um, you know, it just wasn't the time I was putting into it was sort of not paying off, but um, you know, I'm mean, good enough. I was in the book business for a long time before that. So I really wanted to write. And so I started transitioning into um, nonfiction stuff, and uh, wrote a biography about a guy who was head of the NAACP for a while. I did a uh, kind of co-author. I ghost wrote, you know, collaborated with Rudy Crew, who used to be chancellor of the school system. And then um, I just shifted into nonfiction. But the good part was that I brought with me um, a sense of character, a sense of plot, a sense of um, kind of narrative to writing history, which is Mm. the kind of history I like to read, um, to kind of take, all of these academic things which are brilliant but aren't necessarily going to penetrate with people mm-hmm. um to try to turn that into stuff that makes sense and is interesting and fun to read and it's digestible out
0: it's just digestible history at that point yeah right?
1: exactly I mean I, you know we call it narrative history I mean it's it is rather than like you know there's a certain responsibility when you're writing a very academic history of kind of being complete and and um, which is ter- very Im- important, you know, and I, I don't i not mean to denigrate that in any way, but um, sometimes you can lose for the average reader, you kind of lose yourself in the weeds mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, writing for history is different writing for so that people 200 years will pick up this book and say, Oh, that's the book on it. Um, I'm a little more interested in people today, picking it up and saying, mm-hmm. that's what the story is on it. Um, I, I, I like writing things that help um, maybe people do something now, you know, the Chicago, I wrote a book about Chicago between, you know, kind of after world war II when all these really interesting things we think about the United States began there, whether we're talking about Playboy magazine, McDonald's, uh, second city and improv. There's all these different things that came out of there. Um, and I think it was really helpful in getting people in Chicago and again, a younger generation of Chicagoans to see what had happened there and what the real possibilities of, of, uh, looking at the arts and people that grew out of Chicago, which was different than New York. And so the New York book comes at a really um, terrible time, but the timing ends up, I think, being hopefully useful. Maybe two years ago, people wouldn't think about the things I'm talking about in the book the same way. Um, But now that we're kind of forced into a moment of thinking about changing the city, talking about this, looking back, um, seeing what was, you know, and this isn't a, I hope it's not a depressing book. I hope you keep going. It's supposed to be kind of fun and give you a flavor of what the city really was like over these Mm -hmm. years and I've been glad that a lot of people put it down and say you know I feel optimistic Um, I want to do something and, and get out there and just be in the city instead of living on top of it and I think that's what happened in so many in the last few years that sense of gentrifying that sense of people taking it over was that people live on top of it and not in it maybe the same way you did when you moved here 40 years ago or 30 years ago, when you really came to be a part of what it was instead of trying to make it into what you want it to be.
0: Right. Why, why did the book take you eight years to make? Because <laughs> the original, cause, you know,
1: it's a long, a long time. time. You know, it was a, it's a long time to, you know, it's 35 years I was writing about. You know, I went back and read basically every issue of New York Magazine from 1978 until now, and the New Yorker and stuff, because I wanted to not just get the information, but okay, I wanted to remember the stuff around it, like right. the ads, you know, like what what was hot? What were people wearing? what were What were at clubs? Who was playing at certain places? Because all that stuff that seems kind of incidental, you know, in those academic histories, to me is the, that's the glue that's holding it all together. You know, these are the fact that there are people walking past each other, you know, I mean, that that are doing interesting things and connecting with each other. That's the story of a city to me. So kind of getting a a, a wraparound of what's going on took a lot of time. Um, I interviewed a lot of people, um, try to, you know, get a sense of firsthand from people what was going on. And, you know, a lot of research, just a lot of research. And then the original draft was about twice as long as what you have in your hand. So there was some time just cutting and melting it down and, and kind of working with the text after that to make it work so that I, don't adds up so to so I don't
0: i don't feel so bad yeah. than not finishing the book yet. no but <laughs> took, i mean i want you to it, it you would be nice years you know? to write it you know, <laughs> yes. take me like four to read it i guess
1: keep rolling you know it's, it, it, you know the thing is i think it gets more you know, from the people i've talked to you know i think once you start to recognize yourself in the story because i remember working on it and like okay, now I'm up to when I met my wife. Up oh, now I'm up to, now I'm married, you know? Oh, now I have a kid, you know? And in that way, for me, it was interesting. I mean, it is weirdly autobiographical in the background because I was sort of seeing myself in it too. And I think the people I've talked to have read it, um, if they're from New York and have lived in it, kind of find like, oh, here's where I come into the story. Right. And it, it kind of adds a different layer of, of engagement, you know?
0: Yeah, for me, it's probably not gonna be until like Bloomberg because I don't remember Giuliani that's, well,
1: I got, I mean, kind of lucky you, but, you know, I mean, it was a weird, great time, but it was horrible, you know, yeah. it, but also really nice life in the city profoundly changed for the better on a kind of day-to-day level. Mm-hmm. But um, for a lot of people it got dangerous and scary um, for reasons that were all about him and trying to exercise control. And it was, it, it was a weird, weird trade-off um, of, that people didn't necessarily pay attention to at the time at all, even though they were conscious of it,
0: mm-hmm. so. I, out of like the last, you know, well, out of the five mayors that you speak about in your book, like who do you think has the most, has had the most profound, uh, you know, effect on the city? I,
1: I mean, I've it's so hard to say in a way, I mean, I would guess I would have to say, I mean, just because in a way, that's why I broke it down into these kind of different cities, because over these years, it stays New York, but it becomes a different city every time, you know, it is a different place. And the city that's going to come out now is going to be different than what was before. Mm -hmm. It's still going to be New York. But I mean, I guess I would have to say Koch, because a lot of what Bloomberg does, a huge number of people who work for Koch, end up working for Bloomberg, you know, the kind of ideas of public space and public art and trying to bring people out back into the city and stuff are, are ideas that Koch brings people in and it's his people that make that stuff happen. And they kind of stay throughout this period, except during Giuliani, who has his own weird cast of characters. They come back under Bloomberg and are given a lot of power. So a lot of that kind of reimagining of Bloomberg is really uh, based on ideas that, that Koch let happen. So I guess if I had to pick who was the most important, it it probably would be Koch, um, just for that reason. I mean, Giuliani uh, left such a weird legacy, but again, I don't think he would have been able to come in and do a lot of the stuff he did without people under Koch having identified problems and made it possible. It's like the boiler was broken and Giuliano, there's all the tools are laid out like arrows to what has to be fixed, you know? So I think he, he didn't have to do anything in, in a certain way to detect problems. He came in and started doing things. Mm-hmm.
0: Are, are you concerned or, or hopeful for the city?
1: I am concerned and I am hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think it's a, that, that is an not, honest take. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, that's, you gotta be, you know? I mean, uh, it, it, there's a huge, this election is going to be monster. You know, I mean, what people do in June in the primary um, and eventually November is going to be really meaningful, not just because of the mayor, um, but you have 38 new council members coming into the city council out of 51. Um, So that's a lot of new people who will have a lot to say about what the future of New York is like. So that Mm -hmm. is that on one level, that's already a thing that is really big. Um, And you know it'll be really interesting to see what kind of recovery we have i'm fully confident that new york is going to get back up i just hope that the nature of it is is something that's going to be long term because if we just keep doing the same thing we've been doing it's going to come crashing down again and i think we just need to do something that's more as again a little more bottom up to help firm up the bottom to help firm up the middle class small businesses people on the street let's get Let's build that bottom again because that was what New York was famous for in the 30s and stuff of being a kind of tough guy, little guy, kind of positive place. You know, we need that again and not just the rich guy place. Those They were seemingly more balanced before. And so I hope we have a mayor coming in and an administration coming in um, that's open to that and a business community that, that participates and helps a real estate community that understands that people need to spend money on things other than rent you know and people talk about oh you know real estate's down i'm not fully convinced that's a bad thing because it means maybe you can spend some money on food or clothes or the other things that people buy in new york but only in certain
0: brackets though like the the, the rental price are only down in you know the, the higher priced uh, apartment right like the right. the lower price apartments they're not going to go anymore any lower it's just There's sort of,
1: well, the issue there is trying to find more units and more places to, you know, I mean, that's a major, that percentage that we spend on, everyone spends on housing is enormous. You know, it's crazy. And then
0: then even if you wanted to buy a house, like right now is probably the the craziest time for a buyer to even try to do that because there's like bidding wars left and right and people just... right. Album, well, you,
1: but you know, one of the things that's interesting—I mean, I think you know—looking at the book is how different that was over the years, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's not always again; it's not always been this way, you know. In the mid '70s and the late '70s, so many of buildings that are, went co-op and mostly co-op were all rentals, mm-hmm. and then the families that owned the buildings decided to get out of renting, and so a lot of buildings, hundreds of buildings, went co-op, which meant at that time. They could just have plans where everyone got evicted. You know I mean it was it was big and so people they'd get like a notice would go around the building what kind of plan you're going to do then people had to decide do I have the money to buy my apartment do I want to buy my apartment I mean they were really pushed to making decisions that we think we talk about now in terms of, of dislocation but that happened you know throughout Manhattan to a lot of people you know middle class people who ended up getting shoved out to the suburbs by um turning buildings into co-ops and this was at a time when interest rates were through the roof you couldn't even get a mortgage at certain times inflation was like 10 15 percent which is just whack you know i mean so there were you know i my kids are you know like oh you know everybody had it so easy then and you know there were it was not there were there were struggles that people had um that were different, but the way we do real estate, the way we do a lot of things are not the way they always were. And it's useful to keep that in mind.
0: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Usually I like to end off this, this podcast asking, you know, the, the same question that every guest I have on, how do you feel like New York city has changed you? Um,
1: it's maybe more open. Um, to just em- embracing the world, you know. I mean, I, Chicago is, is a great place, and it's a great place to kind of cook up ideas, and it is open to people. But New York is just so, um, you know, it's like a big swamp. Um, I always compare it that way. Like things come and they go, and some people stay, but there's this kind of flush of people and ideas and capital of all kinds, and then it comes in and, and just feeling that, you know, just being able to appreciate what's coming in and being um, not digging in and fighting it, but really embracing that constant change that's going on is, I think, unlike anything in any other city in the world.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on. Do you, do you have any any final words to just leave out the podcast with?
1: Uh, the book is New York, New York, New York, Four Decades of Success, Excess and Transformation, available at bookstores near you, Amazon if you need to. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it'd be great if you read it. It'd be fun. And,
0: and where can people reach you?
1: Uh, you know, I got a website, just thomasdija.com. My mm-hmm. email's on there. You can reach me through there. Uh, read the book, ask me questions, you know? I mean, it's uh, uh, I, I I enjoy that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. I had a lot sure. of fun.
1: Thank you, David. Same here, man. Take care. Okay, right.